Thanks again for tuning in. I appreciate you so much and I appreciate your support. Tell your friends, like, share, follow, rate, and so on. It really helps us with uh, what we're doing at the podcast. In this episode, we explore entrepreneurship, urban development, and access to capital. After the racial reckoning, which was in 2020, and it's ongoing, and it's been ongoing, there were a number of commitments made by big banks, large institutional investors, the government, both campaigns, both presidential campaigns, both the Biden and Trump campaigns talked about investing in black communities. We're going to examine those things with Lanier Richardson. He is the executive director of the Center for Urban Entrepreneurship and Economic Development. He's also a professor uh, at the business school in Rutgers, and he's done lots of transactions in urban environments, in black communities, in Chicago, and in Newark. Turns out he's also a blues man as well. So lots of good stuff. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Parlay in All Blue. Stay tuned. So Lanier Richardson, welcome. So glad to have you and thank you for joining us. How are you today? It's my pleasure uh, to be with you. I look forward to this conversation. We're going to chop it up today. All right. Well, well, this, this is an important conversation because I think so much is actually missing in terms of of expertise and understanding and insight as it relates to building Blackwell and actually just the revitalization of of cities as a whole, as a Chicagoan. And I know you're a Chicagoan. I'm actually getting a little bit into your background there. You know, I have an affinity for for cities and city living and you know being able to walk to the grocery store and, and those kinds of things. So Really wanted to have you on to shed some light on a number of things, particularly, you know, urban development. But b- before we get into that, you're a Chicagoan. What was it? What was it like uh, growing up in Chicago? So I, I'm very proud of my uh, Chicago roots. I grew up, uh, you know, the first decade of my life on the west side of Chicago. OK. Uh, and, uh, you know, west side is the best side. I still believe with school. Uh, and on the west side, my dad opened a bar and restaurant in, um, and, and we moved to Bellwood. It was the first black, you know, chic, chic little bar and restaurant in the seventies. Okay. And, uh, you know, the first outer ring of the city. And we moved there, uh, you know, when I was a teen and, uh, I still have very fond connections. Uh, and memories about Chicago. And as you know, I still do a whole lot of work and have a whole lot of, relationships in Chicago as well. Okay. Okay. So that's interesting. So you know what? We'll have to come back to the West Side being the best side some other day <laughs> because I'm a South Sider. Although I will give the West Side uh credit uh in saying that Chicago's um best basketball player is a West Sider, uh Isaiah Thomas. So I'll I'll I will leave that there. We could come back to that on a uh on another time. <laughs> So with your father, um, so entrepreneurism is kind of in your blood then. You kind of got it out, honest. Oh, absolutely. So I, we have, uh, I have one uh, younger brother. And when they formed our little bar and restaurant, they had a big name. It was called the 4R Restaurant and Lounge Corporation. The 4Rs okay. were my mother, my father, my brother, and I. Entrepreneurship okay. was in our DNA. I mean, literally, we talked about it at dinner, in car rides. Uh, I cleaned up the parking lot. My brother stocked the beer co- coolers. 
I DJed, uh, you know, when the DJ didn't show up, you know, we closed, uh, you know, we came up with marketing strategy. All of that was our early training. And we owned popcorn stores and other stuff after that. But throughout the process, you know, how do you, uh, you know, I saw firsthand the importance of entrepreneurship, right? Okay. And, you know, through my, through my parents, I saw what that meant, not just for our family. I mean, our small little bar, we weren't, you know, it wasn't a, a billion dollar corporation, but it put my brother and I through college. Mm-hmm. I saw my dad support, you know, the block club. You yeah. know, we employed over 43 years, thousands of people. Yeah. Uh, most of which are, you know, people of color. Uh, and so, you know, a small little business that's an anchor in the community, that that was the, the foundation for uh, for my entrepreneurial and my community development, you know, passion. OK, so so now but you 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 talked about it put that their entrepreneurism put you through school and you're a lawyer by training. Um, so how did you go from DJing? And sweeping the parking lot to your formal education and then into urban development. Yeah. So, again, our parents wanted us, you know, demanded of us to be good students. And always there was, you know, just an expectation that we would go to college. And, you know, my brother and I both went to college. Uh, I went to uh, University of Chicago. I went to Bradley University down in Peoria, Illinois, state school. Basketball yeah. school as well. Yeah. Uh, great. Uh, it was a great place for me. It was small enough that it was embracing, of uh, you know, my uh, uh, where I was at, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old. Uh, and then uh, subsequent to uh, college, I remember thinking, am I going to get a job? And I had a professor, you know, tell me you should think about law school. And I applied and I got accepted in the University of Chicago Law School and, you know, started my my law practice and started, you know, Initially at a big firm, then at a bank, then my own solo practitioner, and then ultimately to my own entrepreneurship, is, is I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about. So uh, it was just expected. We were going to college, and uh, and I'm very proud that my parents are proud of us. And I know what that means right now because I have now seven children, and I'm proud of my kids yeah. You know, it's it's such a deep sense of pride, as you know, that a parent can have. So uh, so I'm happy to have made my parent proud and I'm happy that I, my kids are making me proud as well. No, I hear that. I hear that. You know, before before we get into sort of the entrepreneurism, um, just a question. Where are your parents from? Uh, so my parents grew up. One, My father grew up in Chicago, from Chicago. My mother's from the south. They grew up in uh, in you know parts of Mississippi. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, so, so my parents are from, from the South as, um, as well. They're from, from Alabama, but I will tell you that, um, when I, when I see what is very typically, uh, associated with, um, uh, and, and a positive light for me in terms of, uh, of immigrants and their desire for formal education and, owning businesses or what have you, that feeling, if you, if I remember from my own experience in the fifties and sixties and seventies of black people in neighborhoods, especially those coming from the South of having that same sort of, of, of desires and, and, and wants for their children and instilling those values of, of education and, and doing well. So glad to see that you are, are carrying it on or what have you. Um, 
now you 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 mentioned um, moving from law practice into entrepreneurism is was your first into urban development or was there other business? Did you open a bar or what, what did you do first? No, I, I literally started as an attorney at a bank okay. uh, and uh, really discovered my passion there. So at the bank, we had 90 lawyers in the law department and uh, every day the bank would make you know, our job was to document the loans that the bank would make. And the bank would make a apartment I was in. We had energy transportation and leasing companies. You make $50 million or $100 million loans to some big publicly traded company. And every day at about two o'clock in the afternoon, I would fall asleep at my desk. The work was boring, right? It was loan agreements and promissory notes and intercreditor agreements. And, you know, it wasn't until the bank gave me an opportunity to work on a pro bono assignment which was helping a local business owner acquire the building that he was operating from. And it was a $100,000 loan, but it was on the west side of Chicago, not you know a couple miles from where I grew up. And all of a sudden, the work came alive for me. It was the same promissory note and loan agreement. It was $100,000 as opposed to being a million dollars. But something about the connection to community, something about helping a black entrepreneur. I couldn't articulate it this way, you know, 30 years ago. Sure. Something about that made me want to do that more. Right. And so 30 years later, I can summarize it as, you know, seeing value in people and places that other people overlook or undervalue. That's what's fun for me. And trying to make the connection between black entrepreneurs and communities of color and capital and, and be a translator and a bridge that's what makes me wake up every day and you know enthusiastic about you know going going to work. Yeah, you know that's awesome, and and that sort of finding purpose and and what you do is is behind so many uh, success stories because uh, as we know, success is not born without a lot of failures, and so you got to have something, some fire in the belly beyond just sort of making it to to in order to sustain things I think. Now, did you did you then go into financing or capital or development? So at the bank, I then said I want to do something more in community development and I left the bank and worked for a home builder, a guy who was developing single family homes in on the south side and on some of the west side of Chicago. And it was a big jump for me, but it was community development. It wasn't at the desk. It still was. Well, I really, I found out I loved development because it was, it was law, it was finance, it's politics, it's sort of building stuff. I had no construction background or you know not handy at all. But I just loved the the process of putting a deal together. And I, you know, about two years after that, I'd say I was twenty seven. I'd saved about seventy thousand dollars of my own money, and I started my own firm. Uh, two man in a one man office. I initially because I had a law background to keep the lights on and pay our assistant and pay the rent. And at the time we had a copy machine, you know, going way back. Yeah, I had to practice law until we made money. But a year later, I started development. So I've, second year, I developed six single family homes, then 14, then 24. Then, you know, by the last year of my operation, I had 26 employees building over 100 homes a year. Wow. Uh, and uh, all in communities that I care, cared about. But I always tell people my entrepreneurship at that stage had all of the highs and lows from the cover of cranes and 
appointed to, you know, prestigious, you know, state boards and, and that stuff to ultimately I had to sell in the fire sale and figure out how to sell my, rep, you know, save my reputation. I always tell people say, not an entrepreneur till you made payroll. I tell yeah. people, I didn't know I was an entrepreneur till I missed payroll, right? And had to keep people there you go. You know, yeah, working, yeah. you know, and enthusiastic. But yeah. I was able to sell the assets of the company in a fire sale. And ultimately, it took some time to try to figure out what I was going to do next. And I uh, found a phenomenal opportunity to work for a publicly traded company, General Growth Properties, which owns uh, owned at the time 200 large shopping malls around the country. And my mm-hmm. job, still passion work, was to get retailers to see opportunity in black neighborhoods. So I headed something called the Urban Development Group nationally and did projects in Baltimore in Birmingham, Alabama, in Detroit, uh, worked on a big deal in Harlem. Uh, that was passion work as well, again, because it was now having the big resources of big corporate, but also the focus of trying to improve our communities, right? And so it's that still that same theme of how do I get capital and resources and amenities, you know, to communities that reflected, you know, my background. And um, in 2008, very briefly, general growth, uh, it was the financial crisis, the publicly yeah. traded company laid off everybody in development. And so mm-hmm. I had a you know, pivot number two. So people think about careers it's not straight up. It's up and down. Right, right. Uh, I moved to Newark, New Jersey, and I headed economic, the Economic Development Corporation uh, that was started when Cory Booker was mayor. And I ran that uh, until Cory Booker became Senator Booker. And for a brief stint, um, with the current mayor, Raz, Raz Baraka, two incredible, you know, mayors. Right. Right? Mayor yeah, yeah. Cory Booker's charismatic and, you know, um, you know, sort of, you know, just inspiring in his own way. Raz Baraka is, you know, 100% Newark, true and true, and yeah. a phenomenal communicator and, and um, you know, uh, you know, mayor as well. So it's, you know, different people, but, you know, really move the city forward. And then uh, after that, I moved to uh, start my own enterprise again. I got an opportunity to start a business, Chicago Trend, that's been investing capital in neighborhoods. We own uh, some shopping centers, and we have 139 black, local, and small impact investors. I go to staff 1,500, and I run the entrepreneurship center at Rutgers Business School on the faculty there. So I got a full life. But uh, you've had a full life. You've had a full life for sure, and and a lot of lot of stories and a lot lot to share there. A lot of insights. Um, Help me and help the audience understand. Sort of, there's development, and then there's urban development. And what what is what is urban development? And, And and is that even a thing? Yeah. So it's a great question because when I first took my job at General Growth, I probably spent three months getting consensus on what urban and urban development would mean for this company. To some people, urban meant, you know, uh, Fifth Avenue in New York, a water tower place in downtown, right? Um, uh, To me, urban meant uh, underserved, under retail, historically discriminated against areas. There's people think urban means urban suburban, sort of cool little downtowns. Then I remember there was even someone saying, well, we're going to do this urban rural project, right? I'm like, wow, there's such, you know, such a thing. So for me, getting common definitions is a, is a great place to start. I think about urban as density and diversity, right? And, and disparity, right? So, you know, dense places 
racially diverse disparity, but you might have, you know, a job center uh, in a downtown, but you drive two miles out and you have higher unemployment rates. Uh, you have museums and transit, but then you have lower educational outcomes. You have phenomenal Fifth Avenue retail and great restaurants. And then you have neighborhoods that, you know, are fighting to get a first class grocery store or have, you know, an oversupply of, you know, liquor stores and payday lenders and things of that sort. Right. So my focus has been trying to bridge the gap between, you know, these communities where all the amenities and services are there and to make the case and to find strategies that will help create opportunities. And I used to call them underserved, but I think we now are very comfortable saying historically discriminated against. Sure, sure. Neighborhoods that are redlined, neighborhoods that were decimated in, you know, discrimination uh, because of racial discrimination. So so with that, and and I'm glad you said that because, you know, there's a part of, of and listen, I enjoy many of these areas. I'm here in Atlanta and there are areas uh, within Atlanta that 20 years ago were facing tremendous blight. I mean, they just 25 years ago, 20 years ago. I saw them really changing over time and, you know, right in places where there was, you know, a liquor store and literally three hair care product places and and I needed to. So good hair care. So don't get me wrong. But now there's a vegan taco place where you can pay $17 for two tacos with kale and quinoa, what have you, and <laughs> right. coffee shops and, and all of those things. And listen, shout out. I'm glad that they're there. But part of um, what I what I see that I'm very encouraged because, you know, that's a good thing. I think it's important to have, you know, walkable spaces and amenities in your own neighborhood. But part of what I don't see is I don't see enough uh, black businesses in in those areas. How how does that when when we talk about things or or I read about things or hear things like opportunity zones or back in the um, in the nineties uh, there was something that was called empowerment zones or what have you. And whenever I hear those things, it's always marketed as in terms of this is going to help uh, black and brown people, but it seems that they transform into areas where people are excluded, not excluded in the terms of what we think of the traditional sort of Jim Crow of back and forth and not having. And so, you know, those areas seem to be focused. Um, it seems like they're going to be, you know, I, it seems to just put it to be straight with it, that a lot of times that black people are being displaced or locked out of that. How does the work that you do or how can we reverse that kind of trend and make it so that, yeah, I mean, it's good to improve an area, but make sure that um, black businesses, black people, black residents are are remaining in place. How does that happen? Yeah, you're talking about, you know, the sweet spot of my work. Uh, over the last year. So I describe 2020 uh, as a year of pandemic, of protest, and of political pandemonium. My PPP, as I've, I've talked about it a number of times. And what became clear after George Floyd's murder was that there was, in Chicago, there was civil unrest in the very neighborhoods that we were making investment. And what I realized is that 
people of color didn't own commercial property. So, you know, people are, you know, bashing in windows, but nobody, they are consumers, but nobody owned the buildings. No, you know, there weren't enough people that owned the businesses. And so I'm very proud of the fact now that we have, uh, we own four community serving shopping centers mm. and we have 139 black, local and small impact investors. The thought is that people now have, they can take pride of ownership. They will patronize the shopping center and protect it in a different way. And what's happening in many communities of color is, you know, people are, you know, deep, you know, leaving, right? So, you know, in Chicago, they've talked about the number of black folks that have left the South and West Side neighborhoods. And so the goal is that you have a little ownership stake, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll work to make the, you know, retail amenities better. And, you know, and you'll, you know, again, take pride in ownership. It's a tough set of circumstances around how do you get development without displacement? How do you get amenities um, and services that, you know, people desire? Uh, and at the same time, to deal with, you know, gentrification sort of concerns and pressure. And I think programs like Opportunity Zones, Empowerment Zones, they all start with the intent of how do you get more capital to communities that have not had investment. But after last year, the reason why I started with how I think about last year, we all now have an urgent mandate to be intentional about creating policies and programs and initiatives and strategies and deal structures that allow more Black people, specifically people of color generally, to own, lead, drive growth, especially in neighborhoods where we where we live and have historically lived in. Yeah, and and I'm I'm glad you said that. And I want to drill uh a little bit on that because clearly that's uh your focus and aim is that how do we get more black people to access sort of um capital and building relationships with people like yourself, but also the uh, financial institutions? And how do we bridge that gap of, of access to capital? Man, access to capital, I, I read in a study about a week ago, uh, published by uh, Morgan Stanley, that they, there was a study done in 1944, mm-hmm. where the conclusion was Black-owned businesses need more access to capital. So we've been talking about this as an issue yeah. At least formally since 1944. I'm sure even before that. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think of it as patient, flexible, equity-like capital is what's needed. And there's a whole spectrum. You know, there's the venture capital, private equity, fund management spec, you know, spectrum, you know, into the spectrum where people are trying to allocate tens and fifties and hundreds of millions of dollars uh, and trying to get, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40% return. Then there's a, uh, the whole, you know, bank lending and CDFI lending that's, you know, in theory trying to provide debt capital to entrepreneurs. And I'm seeing, you know, more capital being provided there. And then there's also, you know, um, philanthropic initiatives, philanthropically motivated impact investors that are providing low cost capital grants. Uh, and so there's more capital needed all along that entire spectrum. And there's also this thought of needing to look at deals that are being led by, you know, people of color and finding a way to do them as a finding a way to say, oh, they're too risky. Right. And and then finally, all the black entrepreneurs I talk to, including myself, all still need access to that early stage capital. Right. 
people talk about the friends and family round, man. The friends and family round for black folks is hard, right? We don't have deep, you know, generational wealth because of systemic inequality. You know, their whole personal dynamics that come with family. You know, I, man, to, I'd rather and ask my family for money. I almost rather have a, a wisdom tooth and an ingrown toenail and an IRS tax audit on the same day, you know, than ask my you know, fool me for money, right? So it's tough. Yeah, it's tough. tough. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, it is. And and so uh, I, I think it is tough. And and you know, part of uh, what we're trying to do with this show is is to bring people like raise awareness and just bring visibility to people like you, and to start to educate people on the on the discussions uh, around how do we build that wealth and how do we where is capital and how do we access it and those things. Um, now you're in in Newark now and have done this type of work in Chicago. Where else across the country have you seen sort of um, success in this area? Where where are things working well? Oh man, there are people doing good things, you know, you know all around the country. So my uh, business office is in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have um, an office in Newark and my Rutgers Center for Urban Entrepreneurship office in Chicago. We own some shopping center. Uh, we own a shopping center and probably a second shopping center in Baltimore. There's a whole lot of good work being done in Detroit. It's um, Atlanta. You mentioned Atlanta. Invest Atlanta is doing good work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen people doing good work in, you know, Miami. Really great initiatives coming out of North Carolina. There's, uh, you know, uh, New patient capital funds, you know, obviously the bigger places, New York, Newark and New Jersey just formed something called the Newark, uh, New Jersey FAM fund, F-A-M. FAM is 40 acres and a mule fund. And a good buddy of mine has raised uh, significant capital to invest in entrepreneurship. So, you know, people are tugging at this from so many different, you know, different angles. Again, all are, uh, from my vantage point, undercapitalized, all the you know, I mentioned a quick story. I was watching a documentary on Netflix about a guy named David Geffen, who was a music executive. And he had worked with all these famous people. And when he went to form, uh, he decided to form DreamWorks with Steven Spielberg. And he said, you know, so many companies, you know, are undercapitalized. He said, we decided to overfund DreamWorks to give it the highest probability of success. And I was watching the documentary. I remember thinking, I've never heard of a black company being overfunded. I sure would that's love right, to have that's right. know someone or be in a company that was overfunded, right? That said, we're going to give them the highest probability of success to you know, execute their business strategy. And so again, there are a lot of small initiatives and a lot of people doing cool things. They all could, could use more capital. Yeah. So I want to um, talk about two sort of institutions or two groups of institutions that have spoken up about uh, capitalizing uh, urban communities and black communities and closing the the wealth gap and those things. One, during the 2020, which you you talked about uh, after the killing of of George Floyd, um, you had a lot of banks committing, you know, dollars to uh, closing the wealth gap and uh, investing in black communities. Bank of America uh, last year and June, July, committed a billion dollars. Um, just recently, a consortium of 10 financial institutions, including BlackRock, 
and Goldman and others uh, committed $10 billion. That's just, just this May. Couple of things. Are those commitments, um, have they become real? Meaning, are they, are they getting into the hands of black, uh, entrepreneurs and developers? And one, while a billion dollars is a whole lot of money to me, is that enough to actually address the problem? I don't know if you saw that we did a survey a few, um, we closed it at the beginning of October. The purpose of the survey is our analysis at that time was there was over $60 billion of corporate commitment to racial justice um, initiatives. Okay. And we did a survey. I think we had uh, over 500 responses. We're about to promulgate the results in the next couple of weeks here. The questions we posed were, you know, three questions. Are you aware of these big commitments that people have made? Mm -hmm. Do you believe that they'll actually get capital to black entrepreneurs and black led organizations? And do you know any black led organization that received capital as a result of these pledges? Right. And we listed the, you know, the companies, you know, JP Morgan Chase made a $30 billion commitment. Bank of America, you mentioned made big commitments. And interestingly, you know, um, you know, as I said, I've seen some of the preliminary survey results. People know about Bank of America and, and JP Morgan Chase's commitment, but Target and Rite Aid and the Dell Corporation, and Walmart and, you know, so many other large corporations made these commitments. A lot of people don't know. A lot of people don't believe. Uh, a lot of people didn't know about the announcement. A lot of people don't believe they'll get the capital to black entrepreneurs. And most people don't know that they actually have. Right. And my goal with the survey was to facilitate this conversation between the corporations that made these pledges and black entrepreneurs and black led organizations that are trying to advance economic development initiatives with the hope that this is not just hype, that it really yeah. is, um, that it really does make it to the street. So time will tell. It's, it's early. There are some early successes. Google's done some really good stuff recently. Uh, again, JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America, you know, Fifth Third Bank has been. So there, you know, I'm tracking it in my own world. But also, you know, a broader, you know, academic study around, you know, what really, what, what do people, I call it a perception study initially, initially, because again, my goal is not to say, aha, you didn't do it. My goal is people don't believe, Mark, that you're doing this. So let's have a conversation. If you are, let's figure out how we help people understand what you, you know, what, what investments you're making. And if you want to do more, Let's help you do that, right? Or if you're not doing it, but you really are earnest in your intent, you know, let us make some connections for you. That's really our goal there. So, you know, there's no future in pessimism. So I'm really hoping that the capital does make it 60, 80, whatever it is, $100 billion. Is it enough? You know, um, who knows, right? It, I'd love to see $60 billion in the hands of Black-led organization and Black entrepreneurship. I know our communities and our country would be more productive and, and you know, economic productivity of our, our communities would increase. I believe that too. Um, another area sort of outside of the banks is the um, the government. We know that Biden administration, and it's stuck right now in terms of the infrastructure bill. Uh, as a developer, are there things that uh, potentially could be a part of the infrastructure bill that you look at and say, hey, this is an area for urban developers and black businesses to tap into? And, and if so, what are they? Oh, absolutely. 
all the infrastructure stuff will be helpful to our communities. You know, what was very evident during the pandemic was the need for more broadband and internet access in, you know, yes. the you know, inner city communities, right? That's infrastructure if you think about it that way. You know, the continued expansion of transit infrastructure. And, you know, the expectation that, you know, when these dollars really do hit, you know, the city and the county, uh, you know, offices, that there will be opportunities intentionally for Black professional service providers, for Black contractors, for Black suppliers. I think, you know, there's great hope with that. And we know the you know, research is, is conclusive. Black-owned companies hire Black people. People of color hire people of color. So, you know, um, I think there's just great hope that whether it's you know, a trillion or two trillion or whatever ultimately becomes the, you know, the, the final number, uh, that that will show up, you know, in our cities and in our towns and ultimately uh, strengthening our businesses. So so with that, um, and, and I, I'm hopeful, too, um, along that, I think one of the things that we have to do is to actually pay more attention to some of these big bills, you know, that are coming out and, and what they actually mean. I think a lot of times we read the headline and don't dig behind it and and understand how we can tap into it. Uh, one of the things I wanted to go back to is you mentioned um, when now Senator Cory Booker was was mayor in Newark and Ross Baraka, the current mayor, how important are sort of local zoning and relationships with local politicians and, and the governmental infrastructure? How important is that? Uh, you know, the role of good elected leaders in telling the story and understanding, you know, the strategic opportunities in their city of being, you know, pro-business, of understanding the needs of small entrepreneurs, you know, you can't overstate how both the chief executive, whether it's the mayor or the governor or county executive, but also the county, the council members, right, who can pick up a phone and make a call, who, you know, can connect an entrepreneur to, a, you know, an available contract opportunity, a land opportunity. I mean, it's impossible to talk about how important, you know, the local, you know, political officials are. And the cool thing is I'm seeing that more and more of them are running and articulating an economic development agenda. And uh, I think, again, that's going to result in dividends for our communities. Yeah. Now, so part of, you know, what we're trying to to do with the show is where we have different guests on. We had somebody um, who's talked about voting rights and, and those kinds of things is that there is a connection. There's not a lot of times with us, p- particularly for black people. It's like, well, we got to vote or we got to put people in school or we got to own our businesses. And it's like, it all goes together. There's connections there. We need to, we need to be politically active and sophisticated and also understanding capital markets and how to build. And we need well-educated people. It's not a, it's not a one thing. It's a gumbo. It's literally a gumbo that's going to uh, for in terms of things that we can do and and, and should be doing. So um, thank you for that. Before we, and I know you have to go and we so appreciate your time. If there was one thing that you could tell someone who is interested in urban development right now, when I say one, it could be two things. What would be the what would be the areas of focus if someone trying to break into development uh, right now, what would you, what would your advice be? 
So early on, it's about, you know, identifying an opportunity that people don't see, seeing things in a different way. Some people see vacant land. Someone sees a, a building there. And being able to tell as from a development standpoint, it's about the narrative and the numbers to communicate a vision, to talk about the story, but then also to be able to not just say there's a need and advocate and sort of tell the story and, you know, in persuasive way. What else has to be persuasive is the numbers. So all, urban development is about the narrative and the numbers that here's how it will financially perform. Here's how it will stay open. Here's how it will make money. Here's how you know it will get built within the budget. The numbers do play a role as well as, as the narrative. And then if I'm talking to anybody with capital, whether it's a bank or a foundation program officer or a billionaire who wants to see the communities that they grew up in or just you know everyday Black folks who want to invest back in opportunities, there is a need for early stage patient flexible capital. You know, And whether it's through crowdfunding vehicle, we've had some success with that and, and excited about that as a vehicle. Uh, foundations are starting to do more grants, early stage grants to help urban development happen. All of that, that early capital, there used to be a political um, mantra that it was called Emily, early money is like yeast, right? So if you can help more people figure out how to get capital to grow and to get these initiatives off the ground. Um I think we'll, you know, again, we'll see the results. This work is evolutionary. It's not revolutionary. Rarely is it, right? So it's just every day you, we all keep getting up and keep pushing it, you know, keep pushing the snowball up the hill, so to speak. I hear you. I hear you. Well, thank you for that. A uh, couple of questions here. What does it mean to live well? What does it mean to live well? So it's, um, we used to summarize this as happiness healthiness, success, and love. We now have happiness, yeah. healthiness, success, and love, right? So, you know, good health, you know, we have learned over the last year the importance of health. Yeah. Uh, uh, happiness, whether that's through great, and for me, that's been through great relationships, that's doing work that I'm passionate about. Um, success, you know, financial success, it, it, that to some people, it means, you know, $10 million a year. To some people, it means a hundred million, a hundred thousand dollars a year, or or fifty thousand dollars a year. That's an individual choice based on the lifestyle you choose. So you want to, you know, enough capital to live the life as you choose that you you want to live, right? So you know, I know what my number is, and I often encourage other entrepreneurs, what you know, what's your number, right? And that you know, to the extent that you're working in an enterprise that can achieve that number. So happiness, healthy success, and love, you know, great love for relationship. Hopefully, a, a primary relationship, family relationships, and you know, good friends as well. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, and something, uh, and thank you for that because we we believe that a big part of uh, of life uh, it's not just that Black Lives Matter. We we want Black lives to live well. We want all lives to live well. So yes. how about that? And the and the Black ones too. Um, another question, maybe a little lighter for you. What's your go-to in terms of music and why? Oh, so I love music. I mentioned my growing up in a family where I, we lived above that bar. And so the main speaker to the uh, to the bar was below my bedroom. So I learned early Motown. I learned, learned blues music. And I came to uh, enjoy lyrics, song lyrics. 
Okay. So uh, it, that shows up in my life even today. Every week or every other week uh, on my Facebook uh, account, I post some, you know, love lyrics or some fun blues lyrics, you know, for my wife. You know, I, uh, <laughs> you know two weeks ago, I think I, two weeks ago, I'll give you the quick one. Two weeks ago, I was, you're the eggs I have for breakfast. You're the soup I have for lunch. You're the steak on my dinner table. You're the gin in my punch. You're the cream in my coffee and the sugar in my tea. Lord, sometimes I wonder how lucky can one man be? That's Bobby Blue Bland. That's Bobby Blue Bland. So I, I was going like, to say, that sound, sound like Blue Bland. Okay. That's Bobby Blue Bland, right? That's a blues lyric there. Right? Amen. So, uh, hey. But I'll find a blues lyric or a soul lyric, you know, and I, and I make it as a, a ode to my uh, to my wife. Hey, hey, I, I hey, listen. I so like that. And there's no better way to end the show than with Bobby Blue Bland. Because, <laughs> listen, you, you don't know love until you know the meaning of the blues. So, hey, and that's Billy yeah, exactly. Holiday. So, 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 amen. And we thank you so much. And listen, all the best to you. Where can people um, follow you, find out information about what you're doing and what other urban developers are doing? Yes. So my LinkedIn, I'm just Lanier Richardson at LinkedIn is the easiest way. It's L-Y-N-E-I-R Richardson on LinkedIn um, at the Center for Urban Entrepreneurship and Economic Development at Rutgers Business School. And we have some social media pages around our Chicago trend work as well. T-R-E-N-D. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much to Lanier Richardson. We appreciate you for joining us here at the Parlay and All Blue. All the best to you and all the best to everyone listening. We thank you. Have a good one. We appreciate you here at the Parlay and All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay and All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Market G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.